Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from a newly refurbished, well, I suppose the paint could use a little touch-up, podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, me, Solamente me, Mark McGrath, will, I'm sure, be back at some point in the indeterminate but not too distant future. In the meantime, man, it's getting ridiculous. We've got a job to do here, and that job is to 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 relive the memories, retell the story of the history of popular music from, uh, where did we start, 1979, 1980 onward. And uh, it, it's ludicrous. If I don't if I don't keep on doing these shows occasionally solo, I'm gonna get lapped. I'm gonna be there's there's something nice about talking about stuff that came out 40 years ago, 39 years ago, doesn't have that same ring to it, and that's what I'm in danger of of letting happen if I don't look. I said it last time. Mark wasn't here, and I'll say it again. The music, the real star of this show, and we've got plenty of interesting stuff to talk about this month. New releases, April 1982, as always. But first, real quick, a reminder, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. You've heard me talk about all the stuff that I do there. The latest thing is this Guilty Pleasures music show. I put a decent amount of work into just about every podcast that I do, whether I'm doing research or soul searching for the Rambling Man show that I do there. Uh, Who knew all this time all I really needed to do was play a bunch of Paula Abdul and Millie Vanilli songs that my patrons guiltily enjoy, many of which I also guiltily enjoy, and make fun of our collective bad musical taste because that seems to be far and away the breakout hit of my Patreon-exclusive content. So if that sounds like fun to you, send me your guilty pleasures and join the fun at patreon.com slash Mike Tully, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Also, if you are in a giving mood, I think I mentioned this once before, but you can now, thank you to everybody, a lot of you have rated this podcast on iTunes before, and I sincerely believe it's a massive help. I really do, like I've got, it's just me this time, but next two or three weeks, I've got some pretty decent, some pretty fun authors in the works to come visit here and talk about their books. And I swear when these people don't know who I am, when I reach out to them and say, Hey, your book sounds interesting. You want to come on my pod and talk about it? I swear the first thing they do is go and look at the link and see how many reviews there are. And since there is since a decent number of you have seen fit to rate and review, I think that's a major reason why so many very cool people agree to come by and talk to us. So you can now rate podcasts on Spotify as well. So if, uh, if you are a Spotify listener, if you're currently listening to this on Spotify, full disclosure, I don't know how to rate pods on Spotify. I just see the ratings on other shows that I listen to. So if you're listening on Spotify and you know how to rate, I don't think reviewing is an option. If you wouldn't mind, it would be sincerely appreciated. And I do believe it is a genuine help to the show. Okay, all business and plugging aside. Let's talk about April of 1982. I love talking about the um, 
the events, the news from the music world to set the scene of the milieu of the time before we talk about the new releases. Uh, motorcycle accidents. Motorcycle accidents, I feel like, play a not insubstantial role in the history of rock music. It seems to me that I can't think of a plane crash involving a rock star that did not result in a fatality, as is often the case with plane crashes, obviously. There's The Day the Music Died, Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, Big Bopper. There's uh, Randy Rhodes. There was the tragedy with DJ AM and and Travis Barker. And um, I want to say, did an Allman Brother die in a plane crash? So light aircraft does not seem to work out very often for rock stars. On the other hand, though, motorcycle crashes, I feel like I'm aware of at least like a handful of motorcycle crashes involving rock stars, and I can't think of a single fatal one. Can you? I know Billy Idol had a pretty major motorcycle crash, I think. They may have even done like cutting-edge face-off technology (laughs) with him to put him back together. I think a similar thing happened with Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker. Um, Nikki Six from Motley Crue was definitely in a pretty serious car accident. That's why, at least in the in the heavy metal, hair metal world, for a while there, there were rumors a Paul is dead thing. There was a Nikki is dead thing that actually Nikki had died in that motorcycle crash. In reality, I think what happened is Nikki just drank a lot and did a bunch of blow and put on like 25 pounds. Um, and in April of 1982, Billy Joel was seriously injured in a motorcycle accident in his native Long Island, New York. I'm sure it was uh, a, a tense moment for Billy Joel when that happened. It says he spent over a month in the hospital undergoing physical therapy for his hand. When you are the piano man, your hands, of course, pretty darn important. But he bounced back. Everybody, so if you once again, if you're a rock star or prospective rock star listening to this, small airplanes, no, motor, motorcycles, pff, have at it, man. You're going to be fine. On April 26th of 1982, Rod Stewart was mugged, says here, in Los Angeles. It says Rod Stewart lost his $50,000 Porsche to the mugger. I'm not really where you, uh, sure where you draw the line between mugging and robbery, but unless Rod Stewart had the Porsche like in his wallet or his pocket, I'm pretty sure that means his car got stolen. Right? Like, what is what is? Let's think. What is the line? It's it's personal effects, right? If you're if somebody holds you up, if it's your wallet, if it's your cash, even if you're the chain that you're wearing, the jewelry you're wearing is two hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's that's a mugging. This is uh, Rod Stewart had his car stolen um despite his protest protestations rumor has it rod stewart blew the guy had gallons of semen in his stomach when the car was recovered but to no avail the guy made off with it although as i say uh, he was not hurt and the car was recovered several days later influential rock journalist lester bangs died of an accidental overdose and joe strummer of the clash disappeared mysteriously. I've never heard about this on May 18th of, Oh no, no, no. He reappeared on May 18th in the middle of April, Joe Strummer went missing. And I would have to assume when rock stars go missing, it's usually not, it's usually ends poorly. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the band from the UK, the manic street preachers, one of their founding members went missing. It's actually a pretty interesting and fairly touching story. 
he was a, a troubled guy, and I think there were known drug issues, and it is widely presumed that he he died. Um, his him him going missing happened very very shortly before he he died, and the body was just never recovered. But the the band to this day, I believe, so that they were a quartet who became a trio still splits their money in four still keeps a bank account. I don't know if they started kicking the money to the guys whose name was Richie something or other to his family, or if it's just anyway, they, they, they treat him as if someday he is coming back. And that's, that's kind of cool. Um, Joe Strummer of the clash went missing for the clash had a tour lined up. They had to postpone their tour because Joe Strummer was missing I have to assume people thought or feared the worst drugs, accidental death, some combination thereof. He turns up three weeks later in Paris, hanging out with his girlfriend. What had he been doing? I don't know for the duration of the three weeks, but two days before he was found, he and his girlfriend friend ran the Paris Marathon. It's like the least rock and roll disappearance of all time. All he did was probably train and carb load and having crossed running 26.2 miles. Is that what it is? Off his bucket list. He's like, okay guys, UK tour. Let's do it. Let's rock the Casbah. So that's, uh, that those are the major events from the world of rock and roll, April, 1982. As for the music, it's not a huge list of stuff that I think is really worthy of just, I mean, I could, it, okay. It's not a huge list of stuff that's worthy of discussing, based on what I assume you would give a shit about me personally, I, I have a problem when I research these episodes, there's always a bunch of this Japanese folk punk disco band released their seminal EP. And I'm like, shit, it's actually kind of interesting. And eventually I just the the, the needs of my other jobs and my children and my wife and my puppy dra drag me away from that stuff. So I could literally talk about every single album that came out every single month in 1982, but I try to winnow it down to, uh, I appreciate you guys coming along for the ride and I try to not test your patience too, too much. So I try to winnow it down to stuff that people might actually give a shit about. And sometimes there really are like 15 or 18 releases from a given month. God, just so much, whether or not you think it's good music or not, un indisputably historic music in the regard that we still remember it and many people still listen to it today was coming out on a monthly basis back then. It's just something that I marvel at every single month that we do this. It's not an especially deep roster this time, but I've got about 12 new releases from April of 82 that I want to discuss. And I like 10 of them definitely still resonate to the present day. So let's get into them. When we talk about music from this era, we keep talking about the untimely demise of John Lennon. Of course, it reverberated throughout the music world and the world at large. Elton John released an album in April of 82 called Jump Up with an exclamation point. I don't know what it was about the 80s. There was just something in the air that you either needed to be very enthusiastic or you at least needed to feign physical enthusiasm. I mean, think about it. The Pointer Sisters, jump. Van Halen, jump. Elton John's got this album. I don't think of Elton John as a guy who's like physically fit or physically active, but nah, his 1982 album was jump up. And I... Don't think it's debatable that at this point Elton John's like his his real legacy musical work had already been done, right? Is there really anything that he did 
in the 80s or 90s that well when was candle in the wind that's from the 70s right i don't know you know he had his run and then he was still a commercial powerhouse in the 80s but depending on where you personally stand on i'm still standing or sad songs they say so much i don't think that's up there with his greatest greatest hits and he was in a bit of a creative rut i don't know if by his own admission but at least in the admission of his collaborator, the lyricist Bernie Taupin. Bernie Taupin said, this album, Jump Up, was not very good, but its entire existence was justified by the inclusion of one song. Elton John made this song as a tribute to John Lennon. And I kind of assume that rock stars all kind of know each other, especially British ones. People from the same country would all kind of at least rub shoulders. I didn't realize in doing a little homework for this episode Elton John and John Lennon were a little bit closer than I realized. For starters, I did hear recently that Elton John felt comfortable um, poking like the bear and attacking the sacred cows of John Lennon and his lifestyle with Yoko. Like uh, when 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 John and Yoko were doing their whole bed in for peace thing, whatever the hell that was all about. You've seen that there's a picture that just went around recently on Reddit of John and Yoko just stepping out of the bed. So a maid could come in and change the sheets so they could get back in. It's like, so you're making this statement about, you know, the downtrodden of the world and standing in solidarity with them, but you can't make your own fucking bed. You have a servant to do that for you. And uh, I, I don't remember why I, this would have come up, but I, I read somewhat recently that Elton John said he sent a letter to John making fun of him during that era because he's, you know, Elton John was known is still known for his lavish lifestyle and all of the jewelry he'll buy and having flowers in every single room that's refreshed daily. And he was like, John Lennon and Yoko were exactly the same as me. They just like to pretend that they were different. He said he, he sent, I forget how he put it. There was some joke in there, some play on l lyrics or something that Elton John wrote John Lennon a, a letter making fun of him for being like, man, you are such a fucking hypocrite. And John apparently thought that was hilarious. So that just goes to show you this uh, level of comfort they shared with one another. And it said on the Wikipedia, at least that John Lennon's last per live performance was with Elton John, even though it was a couple of years before he passed, I gather he had stopped performing live for a minute. Maybe it was that whole, that long, uh, a couple of year period it was like the, the lost weekend where he was just drunk and hooking up with some other chick and, getting loaded with Harry Nielsen. Anyway, they were closer than I realized. They were friendlier than I realized. And it's not like anyone, anybody who was making music at that time had every right to write a song commemorating John Lennon and his passing. But I, I didn't know it was coming from such a personal place of com uh, camaraderie and kinship in the case of Elton John when it came to this song right here, which you probably know, off of the April 1982 Elton John album, Jump Up, here is empty garden and I've been walking, but no one You know what? Uh, I have a little bit of a of a personal relationship to that song. Somehow, I missed that song when it when it came out. I I don't know how. I think it was fairly successful. But as 
probably all of you know, I was in a band in the 90s. And when you're in a band, there's compromise involved, you know, and there's collaboration. And sometimes that means everybody puts their head together and whoever has the best idea, yay, let's do that. And sometimes it just means that somebody has an idea that you're not a really big fan of, but they are such a big fan of it, you realize it's going to be hard to tell them no. So you just kind of humor them and go along with it. And one of the members of our band was a really huge fan of that song and strongly encouraged us to try covering it. And I didn't know it. And I remember listening to it and going, yeah, I don't, I don't get this. I don't really like this. I am struck because I haven't heard it in years in, in re-listening to it that I, I think it probably would have been a better song, something that stood the test of time a little better had Elton John recorded it in the 70s just because the instrumentation all these guys uh Elton the keyboard people Elton John we'll see it uh with Stevie Wonder as we go through the 80s speaking of Stevie Wonder he'll be on the way shortly they wanted to keep up with the times and I'm sure they were just as innovators interested in testing out the latest cutting edge technology and stuff. And the, a lot of people who'd done stuff with piano and organ were now trying out the synthy stuff. And I, I don't think that sound, although in some cases it's aged very well when it comes to the legacy rockers like Elton John, I think it makes their 80s stuff sound a lot, a lot weaker. But the song itself, I remember this band member was like, we got to cover this. It's going to be so great. And we tried it. And then I mean, you know, my my band was like a proto-emo band, and I was wearing silver leather pants. That song was really not in our lane. And I remember we tried it, and it didn't come together, and we, that was sort of the end of it. And that was kind of the end of me thinking about that song. Upon re-listening to it now, boy, that really is... That, that song really does kind of justify a whole album. I don't think Elton John had a lot of really great stuff, and it's a fairly bad stuff going on in the 80s. But that really is a pretty wonderful song and a very fitting tribute to John Lennon. In a related subject, in April of 1982, Paul McCartney put out a solo album called Tug of War. This was his first solo album since John Lennon passed away. And uh, it's kind of surprising to me that, to the best of my knowledge, there is not a song about John Lennon on the album Tug of War. Paul McCartney obviously has never been above schmaltz or sentimentality. You would have thought that would be, uh, not to sound cynical, but you would have thought he would have done something like that. You may recall we talked about George Harrison did a song, remember, all those years ago. It may have had all the remaining Beatles on it, all three of them, and that was his tribute to John Lennon. It's a really nice, not overly schmaltzy, not overly sentimental song, and a really fitting tribute to maybe Paul McCartney. Thought that that song had uh, had been the Beatles' musical statement on the passing of one of their owner. Maybe he just didn't have a song that he felt all that strongly about that was about John Lennon. I don't know. I know that he was working on this album when John Lennon passed. Like, he was literally in the studio recording one of these songs when he got the news, and he dropped what he was doing, and he put down work, and I don't think he returned to it for a couple of months. And when he finally did, he turned in an album that the rock establishment, the rock critics hailed as a return to form. I guess there was a sense that I've never really taken much of an interest in Paul McCartney's solo career or followed it at all, that there was this sense that McCartney had lost the plot and hadn't made, you know, while Lennon made some truly great solo music in the 70s, there was a sense that 
McCartney had fallen short of his own standard with Wings. There's a couple of there's a couple of Wings tunes, right? Band on the Run and Maybe I'm Amazed. But the the rock critics hailed that Paul McCartney had finally made the solo album we all knew he was capable of making. Paul McCartney was back. And I am going to have to, one of these days, give Tug of War a listen top to bottom and see what the hell they're talking about. Because if the big single from that album is representative of the album at large, then they are out of their fucking minds. You will definitely recall this massive, yet to my ears, regrettable hit song from April of 1982, recorded by Paul McCartney and the aforementioned Stevie Wonder. Together Man, there's that same synthy thing that was infecting Elton John's work around that same era. That's that simply having a wonderful Christmas time synth that Paul fell in love with around that era. Not not the sweetest sounding instrument that's ever made its way into popular music. Yeah, man, uh, it's so easy to see why that song was totally can't miss and why it was so successful. And that is, uh, I'm, I'm a Paul defender but that is paul to me at his at indulging his worst commercial instincts that was another 80s thing man everybody was jumping and everybody wanted to uh uh to address racism in the most in the silliest ways possible it's just like okay there's this issue it's entrenched it's ingrained in the fabric of our nation since well before our nation's founding. Let's do something about it. What can we do? Should we address it at the government level? No, let's make different strokes and ebony and ivory with Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. I mean, look at the piano. It's a perfect metaphor right there. We both play piano. So there you go. Off of the Paul McCartney album, Tug of War. Uh, um, uh, I, 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 on the list of songs that, I don't know if it was number one, but top five songs that nobody would ever choose to listen to ever again. Unless I'm mistaken. Maybe there's some Ebony and Ivory fans out there. I highly, highly doubt it. Moving on. Toto released their fourth album in April 1982, Toto 4. So, for those of you who don't know, Toto is, and I don't really know, but I, I think I got this right, it was a group of really high-profile session musicians. So while the individual guys in the band were far from household names, they were big deals. They were established, heavy dudes within the music industry. Because by the late 80s or the 90s, it wasn't all that uncommon for somebody who you know was okay, an okay musician, but not a great musician to just throw their shit down on record and we'll clean it up and you know we'll edit it and it'll be fine. Time was records were made by goddamn professionals and like every, every other album that you bought in the 70s and the 80s had the same 15 guys playing on just about everything because these guys were note perfect, 
every single time and tasteful as all hell. And that's that's the guys from Toto. Specifically, there's only one guy I, I know by name from Toto. It's Steve Lukather. I think that's how you say that. A guitar, a session guitarist extraordinaire. Probably his biggest claim to fame is he played the guitar on Michael Jackson's Beat It. Everybody knows Eddie Van Halen played the guitar solo. Steve Lukather played the riff and everything else. I remember one time feel I was talking to Slash of Guns N' Roses and feeling like I had earned a little bit of his respect. One of the times he came by the Jason Ellis show, we were talking off mic, and I could see his respect for me drain away quickly when for some reason he mentioned Lukather, and I was like, he's in Foreigner, right? And Slash was just like, I can't believe I have been wasting my time talking to somebody who doesn't even know that Steve Lukather is the guy from Toto. So people who know, know Toto was a bunch of Super heavy dudes, and they'd made one album that I think was successful, probably in the 70s, and then they'd made two more albums that didn't do so well, and the label was like, Steve, babe, love you, but if this one tanks again, you guys might just be doing session work. That might be the end of Toto as we know it. So the band regrouped, and their first album, probably because they were all session guys, was genre-wise and style-wise all over the map. They didn't feel bound by any one particular sound. And then I guess Toto started to develop a signature sound that nobody really cared for on albums two and three. And so for the fourth one, feeling like the fate of their band and their record contract was in the balance, they said, let's just go back to what we did on the first album. Every song's just going to have its own deal. And it worked. It worked really, really well. This album... Toto 4 was, let me get this right, was, nah, it, oh, yes, it was not only nominated for, it received six Grammy Awards, Album of the Year, Producer of the Year, and Record of the Year. Record of the Year is for a single, and I'll play, you know, I'll play you two songs off of Toto 4 to kind of demonstrate that, like, I know both these songs, and I know they're both by Toto, but me personally, I have them in kind of like two different files in my brain because they really just don't sound like they came from the same act. Maybe you feel the same way. So here is, first, the uh, the Grammy winner for Record of the Year as recorded by Toto. If I'm not mistaken, there's a solo that's going to come up in a second. It's a synth thing that's like the exact same sound as uh, we heard on Empty Garden and Ebony and Ivory. That sound was clearly the shit in April of 82. I really like that song. It's corny as all hell, but I think to me, you got to love it. Fun fact that I believe is true. And if I'm wrong, I don't, if I'm not, don't tell me if I'm wrong is what I'm getting at here. I'm pretty sure the titular Rosanna of Toto's Rosanna was a pre-acting fame Rosanna Arquette. I think one of the guys in Toto was dating her and wrote that song about her, and I think that is such a funny coincidence that um, before the world fell in love with the Arquettes, Toto already had. So that is one big hit off of um, 
off of Toto for, and if you have even a, a passing knowledge of the band, you can definitely guess the other one that I'm about to play right now. Hurry boy, it's waiting there for you. Hell yeah, bro. That song, of course, has enjoyed a renaissance of late just a couple of years ago. The internet in its uh, varied and inscrutable way decided that what it desired was Weezer covering Toto's Africa. And what the internet wants, the internet often gets. And so Weezer did it. And it was a really big hit for them, right? And let's just take a second and really think about how bizarre it is that I think I don't think that was a bunch of 50-year-olds driving that driving that train. I think that was young people who thought it would be, you know, strictly for the lulls, it would be awesome if Weezer covered Africa. And it did make sense when they recorded it. It was a pretty natural fit, but you're talking about a band whose commercial heyday was 30 years ago being demanded to cover a song that had come out 40 years ago. Let's to put this in perspective, I'm fond of playing this game because it's just crazy to me how 80s stuff has just managed to just not not linger, but to remain so prominent in our culture. If this same thing had happened during the 1980s, a big star from 30 years earlier, 1950s, what are we talking about? Like Fats Domino, Little Richard, Elvis, like Chuck Berry. And now a song that was 40 years old I looked this up recently, and I believe Bing Crosby was the biggest recording artist of the 1940s. Imagine if, I'm assuming you're about my age, in the 80s, we'd all put our heads together and fucking demanded that Chuck Berry record a Bing Crosby song and that he had done it, and it had just been a hit all over again. It is just wild how we are recycling stuff and how the 80s truly have never gone away. And at this point, perhaps... Never will. Moving on. <clears throat> In April of 1982, John Cougar Mellencamp delivered the album American Fool. I don't know if this is the biggest album of his career, but I'd be willing to bet that it was. John Cougar Mellencamp. I read like a, I, had, I had a scholastic books collection of mini biographies of pop stars that I got when I was a kid. And I seem to recall reading in that that he was signed, and the idea was he was supposed to be another Bruce Springsteen or something like that. And somebody at the label had the bright idea of rebranding him Johnny Cougar. And John Mellencamp understandably hated that, but I guess had no choice but to go along with it. I believe there is an album out there. His first album was released under the nom du rock of Johnny Cougar. And nowadays, although many of us might still refer to him as John Cougar Mellencamp, he's been John Mellencamp for forever. I think we find him here in 82 trying to uh, migrate away from that. And that's that's why I think the compromise name was John Cougar Mellencamp. <clears throat> so he's released a couple albums at this point. I don't think he has a hit song or a major hit song. And he's just writing stuff and demoing stuff and 
they have the dreaded visit from the A&R guy, the, a, the artist and representative, I don't know. The A&R guy comes. And this is the liaison between the band and the the label. The label goes, you know, the bands are off doing their thing and then the and 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 they can't, you know, at the offices in New York, they're busy counting money and doing blow and they can't keep an eye on everyone far flung all over the world. So each band is assigned an A&R guy who goes and checks on them. And they either come back and go, whew, these kids, they're hot. They're working on a single that's going to blow your minds. Or uh, yeah, the singer's drinking even more than he used to, and he's got some really uh, annoying girlfriend, and it might, it might be over for those kids. We might just have to kind of dump that album. And the uh, the A&R guy comes, is, is ready to tell the label John Cougar is not going to put it together. He does not have a hit song, which is... Utterly baffling because he had not one but two smash hit songs that to me seemed like they were totally inevitable uh, uh, radio successes. One of them was Hurt So Good, which is not, I don't think it's the greatest song I've ever heard. Although five-year-old me was a big fan. I think I've already told you that I had a 45 vinyl single and I used to like to dance to it in my underwear. My parents used to like to uh, invite their grown-up friends to uh, to watch me do it and laugh at me. Because that was how infectious, that was how undeniable Hurt So Good was to five-year-old me. But I don't even think Hurt So Good was as big of a hit as the other signature song off of John Cougar Mellencamp's American Fool. Oh yeah, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. Of living is gone to walk on Right, and the story that they tell about that song is that that little uh, drum machine, the, 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 the tap, 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 clap thing was not really supposed to be a part of the song that just when they were laying down because um, it's a very spare arrangement, some acoustic, a little piano tinkling, that one electric section that they had that there basically as a metronome to keep everything on time while they were recording it with the understanding that they were going to ditch it and delete it once all the recording, you know, once all the parts were recorded and supposedly they get it done and they go, cool, mute that. And then the whole thing just falls apart. It doesn't work anymore. It doesn't make sense anymore. And they realize that this thing that had been there, the scaffolding of the recording turns out to be the thing that makes the recording and pulls it all together and so they leave it in and the rest as they say is history it's better to be lucky than good of course okay so now we're going to segue out of the uh the mainstream stuff to the the left of center indie rock college rock whatever we were calling it at that time when mark mcgrath's here we always talk about the k-rock stuff right and i believe we have a turning point here and it is not a coincidence in the slightest up to this point when we've been talking about new releases from 80 and 81 and we're talking about the 
the indie rock bands, the new wave bands, the new romantics, whatever you want to call it. It's always been, these guys are going to be big, but they haven't quite put it together yet. And I'm saying these are, it's bands that I know, but it's earlier stuff that I'm not familiar with. And most people don't know. And McGrath is going, no, no, no. If you lived in Southern California, this shit was all over K-Rock. Well, stuff of that ilk, bands from that scene, starting now and moving forward, it's not unknown. It's not before they were stars. It's not, you only know it if you were listening to K-Rock. It's stuff that everybody knows. And I think it's fairly obvious. The difference is this is a couple months after MTV launched and MTV did a lot of things to the culture, did a lot of things to music. It allowed a lot of uh, very attractive yet basically untalented people to become music stars. But it, it, it was the portal, the conduit through which these indie underground bands exploded into the mainstream. Uh, a perfect example is, is Tony Basil. She's the one song it's Mickey. This is when it came out. You remember everybody's seen the music video, right? She's dressed like a cheerleader. It's totally adorable and uh, infectious. And here's, I don't know all of the facts of this, but this album had been released a year earlier in Europe. And that's that's not common that an album comes out a year ahead of the U.S. somewhere else. My guess is it was not going to get a release in the U.S. It might never have been released in the U.S. were it not for the fact that it was a she's a very video-friendly performer and it was a very video-friendly song. And they're like, oh, shit, let's, let's make a video. Let's put it out in the States. And the next thing you know, this is a song that we pretty much have never stopped hearing ever since. But when you say you win, it always means you won't. Another artist who, uh, I, I don't know, we're going to talk about Flock of Seagulls next, and I know this is not the first time since I've been doing these this month in this year in the 1980s music roundup new release thing. It's not the first time Flock of Seagulls have come up, uh, and, and I'm always curious, okay, so this is before they got big, well... Why was it? Was the material not ready yet, or did what? Should they have been bigger sooner? And I, and I can recall listening to the earlier Flock of Seagull stuff and thinking that I didn't really hear the big song that should have been a hit. Which, uh, whereas the big hit song I ran just feels like a hit from the first time you hear it. When we talk about the bands that you know the MTV effect and the bands that MTV made. Flock of Seagulls is one of the first ones that comes to mind. They were so um, visually stunning. Just the hair was, there was a lot of stupid hair going on in the 80s. And I still think those guys took the cake by quite a bit. Just, it's it's baffling to look at. It's like them and Donald Trump are the two people who have, whose hair has ever seemed to really defy uh, physics and gravity in quite that remarkable a way. So well, let's listen to, a little bit of the song and then we'll talk about it a little bit more. With love and hair, 
You know, man, like uh, Duran Duran to me were always the pers- the poster children for it's a bunch of pretty boys can't really play their instruments. And you, I just sort of accepted that wisdom that was handed down. And then you listen to the records and you're like, um, I, mean, I don't think this is uh, musically inept. I've heard way more basic bands. And I think this bass player is on fucking fire right now. But the visuals, no doubt, overwhelmed the music, and that was by design, and that was the way the band wanted it, and it obviously was a very successful formula. I kind of feel like that makes A Flock of Seagulls like the the poor man's Duran Duran, because I've only really like listened to that song in more recent years, and there's really nice, cool guitar playing on that song. There's more like keyboards on that than you would find on any U2 stuff, but if you pull the the keys away to me i don't know the guitar player of a flock of seagulls his name but his playing is pretty indistinguishable from the edge and we all agree the edge is a pretty awesome guitar player right so i think there actually was a lot more substance to i can't <laughs> i think there was a lot more i'm just gonna say it i think there was a lot more substance to a flock of seagulls than people give them credit for god damn it um elsewhere among the bands who are getting a major major boost in this era from MTV is uh, or was the motels the time we were together I think that's a pretty adorable song right there. I enjoy that very much. It's got that, uh, it's kind of like it could just be a song by heart, but it's just got that nice little extra layer of 80s cheese on top of it. Not for everyone, I guess, but I'm a, uh, I would not call that a guilty pleasure. I, I just genuinely enjoy that and a couple other songs by The Motels. One more song out of this general indie rock scene i guess you'd call it of 82 marshall crenshaw i i don't know the story with marshall crenshaw but i i find his um relative lack of success fairly baffling the story goes that he got signed and everyone's like shit this guy's gonna be huge and he delivers the record and they listen to the record they're like you fucking done it marshall crenshaw this is amazing everyone's gonna love this and then it just it didn't like tank but it didn't really do all that much and i'm not really sure why i i'd be surprised i'd be curious to know if everyone listening to this even knows this song right here by marshall crenshaw Yeah, why was that not more of a thing? And I know it was a thing, and I'm sure if Mark McGrath was here, he'd be like, well, they played that literally 15 times an hour on K-Rock in 1982. But uh, by Marshall Crenshaw will tell you his album and his career did not take off as everyone assumed that it would. And it's surprising to me because the music press of the time, the gatekeepers were so rockist and they were so down on the synthy stuff. They were so down on drum machines. It seemed like they were always did everything in their power to 
prop up the guys who were actually using guitars and uh, particularly the ones who could uh, whose sounds could recognizably be tied to the forebears of you know I mean that shit sounds it's got like a Buddy Holly thing going on in there and uh, I don't know I guess I guess no one there's there maybe sometimes there is no answer sometimes it's just not in the cards and it was not for Marshall Crenshaw but that's a pretty tasty tune right there if you ask me. Moving on, finally, to the the harder rocking acts of the era. I don't know if we're into metal. Did we ever really decide if Van Halen was a metal band? I think they would tell you that they were not. But um, sort of like ACD, very much like ACDC, where and Aerosmith, where so many of the bands who were big in the '80s were so obviously influenced by them and name dropped them, and then. Aerosmith and ACDC and Van Halen remained so big into the 80s, so they were touring arenas and hair metal bands that sounded like them were opening up for them. I don't know where you draw the line exactly. They obviously are part of the story of hair metal one way or another, but um, this is their... What are we up to here? This is, I believe, their fifth album, Diver Down. We're still in David Lee Roth, and... I, I like Van Halen as a guitar guy. It was always just like you need to, you know, you need to study your this person and that person. You gotta study your Eddie Van Halen. And I spent some time with the first Van Halen album. It's a pretty amazing album, top to bottom. It's like a lot of debut albums. The band had years to write it. They had more than enough material. I think they probably left stuff off the first album and put it on Van Halen too. But then you fall into this cycle of tour most of the year, come home, dry out, sober up, you know. Uh, break up with your girlfriend, <laughs> write a couple songs. Hey, Eddie, what have you been doing in Soundcheck for the last nine months? You got something? Please, please, please crank out an album, head back out on the road. And look, it's great to have albums that have 10 or 12 awesome songs on them. But two, it was enough to have a couple more singles and to buy you another year of fucking mega stardom. And when I went back, when the streaming services first took off and it just you know, I wasn't going to go pick up a, a copy of Van Halen's Fair Warning and spend 15 bucks on a CD. But all of a sudden, I was like, shit, I'll listen to that someday at work. And, and I go, oh, wow. They were, the first album's really good top to bottom. It seems like after a couple of albums, there was a lot of filler. A lot of times it was just Eddie making silly guitar noises and Dave singing metaphors about his testicles. And I, I think that's kind of where they still were in 1982 when they released diver down indeed there was no hit song off of this album that was written by the band the whole covers thing with van halen i mean there's a lot of things that drove them apart a lot of things that were probably a lot more a lot more fundamental issues than should we or should we not do covers but i know that was part of it David Lee Roth was like, hey, man, we cover a song. It's a guaranteed hit for us. What am I missing here? Why would we not do that? And Eddie Van Halen was a little bit more of an artist. Like, hey, we're not a covers band. I want to focus on original material. And indeed, I can't recall them having done a cover with Sammy Hagar. That's got to tell you something. Meanwhile, Dave goes solo. The very first thing he puts out like two months later was uh, California Girls. So you can see who was who was pushing for the covers all along. In this case... It was definitely better than nothing because there's three singles off of Diver Down. I am not personally familiar with Secrets, which was the third single, but I think all of us know the other two, which were Dancing in the Street and this song right here. Pretty 
man. I mean, leave it to uh, Diamond Dave never lacking in hubris or confidence. Uh, you know, Dave's one of the great frontmen in all of music history, but he was it was more about the um the showmanship and doing splits and wearing chaps than it was about the actual vocal chops and leave it to David Lee Roth to be like Roy Orbison, the great, pretty much indisputably the greatest singer in the history of rock and roll. Yeah, I'll cover his shit. Yeah, no problem. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Let's do this. And yet, and yet they pull it off. And it, you know what? It was fun to hear Van Halen cover songs because it was oh they picked good songs that suited them. You know, you really got me, you name it. And uh and 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 they they kicked the shit out of those songs. They were fun, cool covers and it worked out pretty well despite not having a signature original song on the album diver down sold 4 million copies and spent 65 weeks on the album chart at that point in time those guys truly could do no wrong cheap trick on the other hand where i want to say they were in a dry period i guess the run was virtually over they had been you know, really big in the 70s. I want you to want me, surrender, dream police. And then they did have a renaissance in the late 80s. They did that, you know, they never stopped. They never tired of telling people that they were had to be basically bound and gagged to agree to record the flame. I will be the flame. You know that one? Um, they didn't want to do it. And it doesn't sound like Cheap Trick. That could have been 10 other bands recording that. But it was a big hit. And, you know, maybe um, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. It was, I'm sure they cashed a few checks as a result of that. And also, they had a success with uh, an Elvis cover, Don't Be Cruel, around that same era. But this is them kind of having lost it and trying to find their way back into the mainstream game. They had made an album, the preceding cycle with George Martin, the famed Beatles producer, and I guess not much happened there. So they uh, went back to the drawing board and came up with this song right here. Yeah, that's fun. She's tight. The rarely attempted lyrical single entendre. You know what I find interesting about that? So the wife and I are um, we're kind of rewatching the Nick Cage movie Valley Girl. It'll shock you to learn that that's how we spend our free time. But like just when we put the kids to bed and we're watching it like five minutes at a time and it's just a fun little time capsule and it's like a glorified music video. There's 10 minute long scenes that are just like Nick Cage walking around a mall while they play a bunch of K rock songs and listening to that cheap trick song right there. Like I feel like it could have been right at home on the Valley girl soundtrack. It sounds very much of the era of 1982 and you wouldn't have said that about surrender or I want you to want you those sounded and felt very much of their time the 70s and yet unlike a lot of bands like unlike when cheap trick did the flame and really sacrificed their essential cheap trickness to just make vanilla faceless shit um whatever you might think about that song 
I definitely feel the essential cheap trickness coming through. I don't think it's like the greatest song I've ever heard, but I do think it's pretty cool that they managed to roll with the punches and change with the times and get through the gauntlet of 70 shit into 80 shit while still sounding like cheap trick. And if you like cheap trick, that's uh, that's a pretty decent cheap trick right there. Uh, let's see. We'll do two more songs. Um, the le- So we've had two guests in the history of the Jason Ellis show whose personal odors linger in our memory to this day. You've heard me and Jason talk about there was like a sex doctor lady who came on the show in New York and then but but the far more memorably stinky of our two most stinky guests of all time was the drummer of Anvil. We had Anvil on the show when they were doing a victory lap for that um, that documentary story of Anvil, whatever the hell it was it was called. And it's if you haven't seen it, just stop listening to this podcast and go watch it. It's way more entertaining than anything I'm going to say from here on out. It's like they made Spinal Tap, and little did we know that a Spinal Tap was being made. There was a real-life Spinal Tap who were touring Canada and perhaps also... Um, also parts of America, and that's Anvil. It's two guys who love metal, are never gave up on the dream, aren't necessarily the brightest individuals who have ever graced the planet, but through grit and determination and, uh, and indeed the love of metal, they got there some way eventually and, uh, and, and inspired that, um, that really, really tremendous documentary. But this is them in their prime of trying to make it and as we've already established and playing other fringe metal shit that's like forgotten to the ages on these episodes in the last year or two it was a big thing for metal bands in those days to write songs about metal it had been done to death and now here comes anvil and they're like but we're heavy we love metal what are we going to call our song what is what could be heavier than metal i know metal on metal Yeah, you get the idea. Oh God, that is so that is so sweet. Uh, is it like uh, I I I I feel like you can't help but simultaneously laugh at and with that very minor uh, classic, but classic nonetheless from Anvil off the album Metal on Metal, also featuring songs with titles like Jackhammer, Mothra. If you're if heavy metal parking lot is your scene, then Anvil is everywhere you want to be. And that's about all the stuff that I want to talk to you about. I'm going to leave you with something that is uh, way out of left field from the 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 extreme edge of avant-garde. Came an artist called Lori Anderson, and I think she had already made a name for herself. I mean... In like David Byrne world, I don't know if she knew David Byrne personally, but I just always pictured David Byrne from Talking Heads hanging out with like the most artsy people imaginable, like the, the global art who's who elite in Tokyo and Paris and New York. And Laurie Anderson, I gather, was already a star in that world. She'd already like done 
calligraphy underwater in an aquarium in Osaka and fucking wrapped on Mars or, you know, she was just multimedia avant-garde shit. And although nobody could have thought that she had any commercial prospects in music whatsoever, I think Warner Brothers gave her a seven album deal. And the only thing that's crazier than that fact is the fact that in a limited but real way, it worked. So Lori Anderson turned in an album, which didn't do much of anything in America. I think it peaked in the, like around 120 on the Billboard album charts. But this song that I will leave you with went all the way to number two on the pop charts in the UK. If for some reason you're listening to this in the UK, I probably don't even need to, this song probably needs no introduction. This was a massive and incredibly unlikely hit song. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. If you're listening on Spotify, please rate. If you're listening on iTunes, anywhere you're listening, please rate. Thank you so much for being here. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I got a couple of pretty cool authors lined up to come on the show in the weeks to come. I have no doubt Mark McGrath will also make a return appearance in the not too distant future. But for now, thanks. Have a great day and enjoy to the extent that that is possible. Lori Anderson. And her uh, her 1982 UK number two hit, Oh Superman. Oh Superman. Oh John.